Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The history and current status of the California state park system, as in, how did we get here and what's gone wrong, is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Efforts to close our state parks and transfer their management to private corporate control continue to occur in California. We visit with Franklin Graham, Ph.D., who describes how the California Public Trust to protect our parks has been bureaucratically compromised. This program, recorded in the Radio Curious studios on August 20th, 2012, begins with Mr. Graham's description of how our state parks were established. The park idea, if you will, began uh, literally uh, during the Civil War of uh, the United States. And uh, throughout the 1800s, there were a number of citizens in California who realized that uh, the state was growing very fast and it was exploiting, if you will, the natural environment right and left, and that something had to be saved. Individuals started their own campaigns to try and save uh, valuable and uh, uh, treasured resources in their own immediate area. There were a number of these efforts around the state where people recognized that we were fast losing the natural environment itself uh, to development. Uh, the same is true with Hendy Woods, interestingly enough. A man named Joshua uh, Hendy, uh, he uh, was a lumberman, a German-born uh, lumberman who had a sawmill on the Navarro River. And this is in Anderson Valley, Anderson Valley in yes. uh, the home county of Radio Curious, That's Mendocino right. County. That's right. And uh, he realized that, uh, you know, before long, there wouldn't be any redwoods left. In his will, he asked that the uh, Hendy Woods be preserved in perpetuity for the people of California. There was a man who gave a speech before the um, Anderson Valley Unity Club, and the women decided that this was a project they could take on, and they started a campaign to uh, save Hendy Woods. And uh, the 840 acres or so that is now constitutes Hendy Woods has some of the finest stands of old growth uh, uh, redwood left uh, in uh, the world. And uh, it was saved in part because of uh, Joshua Hendy's wish in his will and the coordinated efforts of these uh, women who came together through this unity club. Let's talk about the state's obligation, specifically here in California, but I think it's general across the nation. And the concept of public trust, mm -hmm. the yes. commonwealth. Yes. This is the concept that undergirds all state parks and, and the national parks that we recognize that in our world, we need these places. Uh, we need them not just for the wildlife and not just for the environment itself, but we need it for our own souls, our own sense of well-being. Let's go back to the obligation of the state of California now in 2012 to save the state parks as we have come to know them, and they have come to be. Throughout most of the history of the state parks, it was clearly understood that they indeed held these properties as a public trust and that these had to be protected and preserved and made accessible and available to all citizens of California. 
accessible and available to all citizens of California. That's right. And other people who pass through our state. That's right. As recently as 2001, the former uh, Parks Director, Rusty Arias, in a uh, report of the state parks at that time in 2001, made the point that there were three objectives, three objectives to the state park. Uh, one of them was to uh, protect and preserve these state parks, taking into account the local communities in which they uh, are situated. Secondly, that they be accessible and available to all Californians. And third, and this is in his report, that they be accessible and available for the next seven generations so that the yet unborn would still have these parks here for their benefit and their enjoyment. Uh, that really is the core, I think, of the mission of state parks and has been until at least 2001. So in the past couple of years, that seems to have been ruptured and challenged from within the state park system. I know you have examined those issues, been to Sacramento, written numerous articles on this issue, and I'd like you to tell us about it. Let's talk about what happened to the state parks, the governance, the finances. Share with us what you know. Well, if you go back and you look at the history of state parks, as late as the 1970s, uh, state parks were supported through uh, general revenues, that is, the taxpayers of the citizens of uh, the state of California. Uh, the general fund portion of the state park budget uh, until the 1970s was at 90 percent. Uh, but since the 1970s, they have eroded to the point where currently we're talking about an operating budget of which uh, about 29 percent of it is supported through taxes uh, from the uh, general fund citizens of the state of California. Uh, people ask, well, what does that really mean? Uh, I try to break it down into very simple terms that, you know, when we're talking about $122 million in the budget being general funds, what we're really talking about is perhaps 2 to $4 per year uh, per citizen in the state of California. And when you think that uh, to serve 279 park units and make them available to all citizens of the uh, state of California, some 80 million people a year visit uh, state park, that uh, 2 to $4 is a small price to pay, especially when you consider that we're spending upwards of $10 billion a year to lock people up in state prisons, or we have politicians who talk about a $50 billion peripheral canal or a $12 billion-plus bullet train to nowhere. When you start looking at the magnitude of the projects that, if you will, they're willing to spend our hard-earned tax dollars on, and you say, but look over here. You've got all of these state parks that anyone can go to at any time and enjoy. And you say $122 million out of a $100 billion budget is too much to pay? I don't understand it. I don't think anyone in the state of California who is not inside the system understands it. It's a no-brainer. What happened to this no-brainer? I think a number of things happened. Number one... We had a director come in uh, for 10 years, uh, Ruth Coleman, who um, obviously uh, she seems to have had a very different view of what the role of state parks were. So rather than have at the center of her uh, a focus, if you will, the established mission of state parks, 
she somehow um, and her her administration in general within the state parks uh, they became more and more insulated and isolated from the general public that they were there to serve. What you're saying is your conjecture, or can you point to specific things well, that I can. support this? I, I can. Um, when you consider that uh, Ruth Coleman, as a director, uh, she uh, often spoke about the uh, department as, quote-unquote, the enterprise department. And suddenly you find that everywhere you turn in state government, especially within uh, parks and recreation, everybody's talking about a business model, cost-benefit analysis, and ways to shift the burden of maintaining the parks away from the general funds and onto the user, the visitor. In your research, tell us what you found about the extent to which uh, that's occurred. Uh, the parks being maintained by the users rather than the general fund? Well, if you go back and realize that even today, only about 30% of park visitors, we should say parks and beaches, uh, only about 30% actually uh, pay a fee to enter a park. And it's been that way for, for many, many decades. And people have come to expect that, that, that they can just walk onto the beach and lay their towel down and enjoy it. Uh, it's a little more difficult when you come to a place like Hendy Woods, where there's a clearly there's an entrance gate, and you you have to pay your fee going in for either day use or camping, and the revenues are collected. So uh, that's sort of the history of uh, what the difficulty is, if you will, in making parks pay for themselves. Uh, so a lot of the state budget is uh, through grants and other bond programs, et cetera, that that are dedicated to to specific purposes. But uh, if you go back as late as 1997 and realize that we had a problem then, not a huge problem, but nonetheless a problem, of um, about $75 million in deferred maintenance, things that should be repaired or upgraded that were not. For example? Oh, trails, uh, visitor centers, uh, water and sewage uh, availability within the parks. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure is aging. A lot of the infrastructure was built, interestingly enough, during the Depression. So the problem is, is that that particular deferred budget has ballooned now to about 1.3 billion. And by 2020, the estimate is that it'll be at about 2 billion. There's no way in the current, uh, uh, if you will, climate in Sacramento that we're going to find $2 billion to bore into parks to bring them up to snuff. And so we have a, a, if you will, an eroding infrastructure. And that burden is is weighting down the Department of uh, Parks and Recreation. Add to that that there is this increasing philosophy that we must find a way of shifting the burden away from general tax dollars onto the user to find the highest price you can for the services that are available within parks, especially camping. So on a... Um Larger scale, statewide in other levels of government and nationwide in many levels of government, we find the eroding infrastructure and a change in philosophy. If you can't pay, you can't use it. And if there's no money coming through from the users. Well, they don't actually sell it outright. Here's what they do. Uh, The recent uh, uh, move has been to privatize some state parks. By privatization, they mean that the state park system will, if you will, technically own the state park. 
but that the revenue-producing elements within the state park will be shifted to the for-profit environment so that while safety and uh, uh, security, uh, long-term maintenance, uh, infrastructure, uh, it, it's all there. It has been built over a hundred years by the citizens' taxpayers' money and volunteer efforts. Uh, that that all is there. So these for-profit uh, companies come in and just say, "All right, now we're going to start collecting the fees for these campgrounds and marinas and etc." And we will find that price uh, over time that is the highest price that we can charge for those services. And uh, what we will give back to the state, Brandon Island is a good example in the Delta, is a rent of 3% of our revenues. I don't know of any other business in which you uh, can say that you walk in the door, everything's there, it's already been built by other people, and uh, we're going to uh, collect the revenue portion of this uh, enterprise, and we're going to give the state back 3%. Uh, it, it doesn't really make any sense at all, unless you go back and you realize that that's part of what's been going on in the Department of uh, Parks and Recreation for years. This begs the question of the public trust and the yes, government obligation. It does. It does. To the people. You, you would think that they would say, let's not go there. This is not part of what, this is not what public trust is all about. What has occurred? So what's happened is we have, uh, I think, six parks currently that are uh, e- have either been turned over or about to be turned over to private enterprise uh, for-profit companies. And those parks are? Well, briefly? Brandon Island is a good example. Uh, they have... Uh, and a, that's located? In the Central Valley, uh, in the uh, Delta area. Uh, it's a wonderful waterway area, so a lot of people go there for uh, boating and fishing and swimming. And uh, uh, there's an elaborate, uh, large campground uh, environment in place. They already are uh, American Land and Leisure is already operating uh, that park. Closer to home here, you have Benbow Lake uh, State uh, Reserve area that will also be taken over by American Land and Leisure. And so, when you look at these, you realize that the only thing that uh, the uh, private for-profit companies are interested in are. those specific units within the park that are relatively high in potential with respect to revenue. And they come in and they take over those revenue-bearing sources that help sustain the parks and give back 3% of it, but the park department itself is still responsible for the uh, overall uh, ownership and uh, uh, the environment and protecting the species and everything else that goes into a park. Let's change direction here for a minute. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Franklin Graham, who lives in Anderson Valley in Mendocino County, has a Ph.D. in archaeology, and is visiting with us in the studios of Radio Curious on August twentieth, 2012. I'm Barry Vogel. Frank, talk about your visits to Sacramento and some of your attempts to get specific information on the closure of uh, many of the parks. In in March 20th of uh, this year, uh, we had what was called the Park Advocacy Day, in which about 200 people came to uh, Sacramento, uh, specifically to lobby uh, the state legislatures for the parks. However, the objective was very narrow. 
That is, the two bills that were currently before the legislature, uh, sponsored by Jared Huffman and by Noreen Evans, both of these bills uh, have a lot of good in them. Uh, They seek to find a long-term, if you will, sustainable model uh, for uh, the financial support of our parks. But again, uh, the uh, California State Parks Foundation wanted to focus only on those two specifics during that day. They were the ones that organized the event in Sacramento that day. This was the 10th annual Park Advocacy Day. So what you found was that while we were there specifically to support those two bills, and there was a hearing that day before uh, Huffman's committee on uh, the bill, uh, that the problem is is that every component of these two bills is, again, burden-shifting. That is, they were looking at uh, ways in which people could uh, get a vanity plate, if you will, and the monies would go to the parks, or you could have a checkoff on your taxpayer, uh, your taxes, for volunteering uh, some of the money rather than refund it, give it back to the state, shifting some funds around within different pots, if you will, within the the budget. The uh, clean water uh, uh, funds, for instance, could be shifted over to help get us over this hump. None of these bills really address the long-term issue of continued general fund support for the parks, that is, taxpayer support. There has been this long, if you will, trend towards zeroing out any direct taxpayer support for the parks. And you say, well, wait a minute. If parks bring back $4.2 billion per year in economic value to the state uh, through not only the fees that are charged at the state parks, but the taxes and the employment and the impact on local communities, So when you ask the question, how is it that $122 million, which is the current level of state funding, is not worth it to indeed uh, generate $4.2 billion uh, to the state every year uh, uh, through the local communities, activities, uh, uh, visitors, uh, the visitor fees, the taxes, the employment, what happened? Well, if you indeed are operating on the basis of a business model that looks for indeed increasing prices or the revenue uh, uh, for every service that the parks provide and uh, finding a way in which you can uh, uh, zero out uh, state funding for the parks uh, through taxes, uh, you end up with a a model uh, that puts the parks under tremendous pressure to indeed sustain themselves over the long term. But there's a parallel issue that's going on here, Mm -hmm. and that's the money that was taken out of the park system Yes, there is. And Let's talk about you, that. If you go back and look at this, and these hidden funds, as they call them, go back a good 10 years. What they did was they sequestered fees and kept them off the books and kept the finance uh, uh, department in the dark about this $54 million. Whether or not it was a slush fund, uh, you can't tell. Uh, it was so secretive that to this day we really don't know why or who originated those funds. But with the uh, former director, Ruth Coleman, she was there for 10 years. And uh, there are his recent reports that, indeed, she was regularly briefed on the existing funds. So while they were trying to save $22 million by closing 70 parks, they had $54 million sitting off the books. And you, you've got to say, what kind of a, uh, governance is this? Well, and then you find that there was this man uh, named uh, Manuel Thomas Lopez, 45-year-old 
uh, deputy director under Ruth Coleman, who uh, back in uh, June of 2011, within a month or so of announcing 70 park closures, they went and had a vacation buyout fund to the tune of something like $271,000 that they made available to those park employees at headquarters uh, that they could turn in their accrued vacation time for cash. And this one employee, Mr. Lopez, uh, took more than 10% himself of that money. What is your basis for saying this? Well, it's been reported widely. Uh, the Sacramento Bee unearthed this. They did a public uh, records request uh, back in uh, the early spring and indeed found that there was this uh, buyout program that 65 employees took part in. Uh, I find it a little disingenuous to suggest that Mr. Lopez had well over a 1,000 hours of vacation time that he could turn in for cash. He hadn't been there that long, unless you have six- or eight-week vacations every year within the Parks Department. So the idea that these people could cash this in at the very time that we have the state in crisis trying to find the money to meet the governor's demand of cutting each budget 9%, uh, it just, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. Unless you say, well, what is the net effect of it? It simply not only further weakens the financial uh, viability of the parks department, but it uh, has a terrible effect on morale, and uh, it, it, it does not address their real issue of how to sustain the parks in any way, shape, or form. So again, it was another concrete action in which they were taking care of themselves, but not taking care of their public trust. The they to whom you refer are the highest echelon of the state parks. That's correct. I mean, within days of this particular uh, crisis, the scandal uh, of the hidden funds and the buyout program, uh, Ruth Coleman resigned immediately. Uh, her deputy director uh, was fired. Uh, Mr. Lopez was terminated uh, back in May. Uh, the chief counsel, Ann Malcolm, uh, who consistently refused requests for uh, documentation of the park closure issue, uh, resigned. And uh, clearly, uh, as clearly as this weekend, there are evidences that there are even more people who are about to resign at the top levels. The interesting thing is, is that none of this has anything to do with those park rangers and full-time employees that the general public comes into contact with when they indeed visit a state park. Those are the people who are the real heart of the parks department, not the bureaucrats sitting in Sacramento. Frank, you've mentioned the secrecy and the lack of communication within the Department of Parks and Recreation. Uh-huh. Can you tell us about that? Well, if you look at the departments and uh, if you look at the department as literally a culture, it's a culture that indeed is there uh, uh, that has become very secretive. You you can't ask them questions and expect answers. They acted as if they're unaccountable. Uh, they certainly don't speak to the general public very much. And uh, you find that, that this is part of the, if you will, the cultural environment in which they've gotten used to, and at least over the last 10 years. So a couple of thoughts here. Mm-hmm. In your experience in exploring governments and in exploring anthropology, do you find that this secrecy is unusual 
particularly in an area of the public trust, such as parks and recreation? Well, you do if, in fact, what you don't have is any real oversight. Uh, They don't have public meetings at which uh, general citizens as well as elected officials can ask hard questions. Uh, They literally have developed a language onto their own. So they talk about enterprise zones, or they talk about uh, um, the the uh, uh, cost benefit analyses. All of this jargon, if you will, has become literally a language of communication within the central bureaucracy of the state parks, and very little of it has anything to do with what the real mission of the state parks are. Why do you think this uh, lack of accountability, transparency, if you will, uh, has evolved? Well, I think there are two reasons. One is there has been, uh, at least until very very recently, no accountability, no oversight, where, where they're brought in and reminded from time to time that indeed they have a public trust here to protect. And how are they protecting that? And secondly, uh, the only people who speak to them are either in other agencies within the central bureaucracy or a well-established uh, uh, park foundation, if you will. But the general public as such is not allowed to enter that conversation. And my experience has been that the general public, the very people who visit and use and treasure these parks, they are the people who really know what they want from the parks, and they're the ones that need to be heard from. When you say not allowed to enter the conversation, sure. how are we excluded? Well, take, for instance, the most recent hearings before the uh, Assemblyman Huffman's committee. The one back in March that you mentioned yes, earlier. right. What happened there was you had uh, people like Ruth Coleman and uh, Elizabeth uh, Goldstein, uh, the executive director of California State Parks Foundation, they were allowed to speak at some length about the parks and the current crisis of funding and closing of parks. But when the general public, the people who took the time to come all the way to Sacramento and to present themselves as supporters of state parks, they were told, you must come to the mic, you must give your name, the organization you belong to, and whether or not you support the current legislation being considered. That's it. There was no other comment. There were no questions. They weren't allowed to. This rule was determined by the chairman of the hearing? Well, it was evidently this is the way they do business in, in Sacramento, is that when you, when you have these kinds of hearings, you bring in, quote-unquote, the experts. They're allowed a certain amount of time. But the general public, well, you know, just raise your hand, yes or no, and that's it. And uh, so the really hard questions and the real insights that the public is indeed capable of bringing to the table are simply not there. Well, Frank Graham, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, some questions about you. Sure. What would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I'm a writer, and uh, I write a lot. They'll find me at my desk one day with the pen still in my hand and my forehead in the inkwell, I suppose. And finally... Uh, Is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? An anthropologist, uh, Edward T. Hall, to the silent language and uh, the hidden dimension and anthropology in everyday life. It's a book called West of the Thirties, Discoveries Among the Navajo and Hopi. The most important thing about the book is it helped him define what it is that he wanted to do with his life. And from that, one of the great anthropologists of the 20th century uh, was uh, was born. Well, Frank Graham, 
Thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Franklin Graham, Ph.D., has researched and analyzed the bureaucratic compromise of the California state park system. The book he recommends is West of the 30s, Discoveries Among the Navajo and Hopi by Edward T. Hall. This program was recorded on August 20th, 2012. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.